All right, uh, here we go. Um, again, I'm Doug uh, with Peter, and we're going to be discussing uh, Steven Spielberg's 1977 opus, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Do you want to start us off, Peter? Yeah, I'll try to make the plot summary less than 20 or 30 minutes this time. <laughs> I think the uh, last time somebody was going to hang themselves by the time I f- <laughs> finished the... <laughs> Me. Right, so this this is, is it, right me too i was talking so this is the super brief version so um a bunch of people see some aliens uh they start acting funny and getting obsessed uh richard dreyfus being the main character we follow um at the same time there's government um some sort of mysterious indefinite semi-government quasi-government um, investigators that are running around the planet looking for unusual occurrences and uh, everything comes to a head when everybody meets at an appointed place that they figure out the aliens have informed them uh, coordinates to uh, in Wyoming. They all meet, there's alien contact, the ship comes down, it lets out a bunch of people that have disappeared over the ensuing previous decades. uh, And Richard Dreyfus gets on the ship and flies off. Right. Exactly. Is that shorter? Yeah, no, I think that's good. That's good. And there's a lot of lights. <laughs> there's a lot Tons of bright of, lights and, possibly and in, the, in darkness. Possibly the coolest part of the movie are the lights. <laughs> so this is uh, this is Spielberg's first film after Jaws. I mean, before Jaws, he has really the two. The mega blockbuster he has, well, Jaws. He has two films before Jaws. He has Duel and Sugarland Express. And it's really Duel that gets him noticed. Jaws, obviously... You know, huge, puts him massive, on the, you know, make, gives him global, national and global recognition in Hollywood. And he goes on to make uh, Close Encounters, which he had apparently been and, working on for quite some time. And this is uh, during the period of the big sci fi revival because it's the same year Star Wars came out. Right. Although, and, uh, although it comes out after star wars is it released right. in 77 or is it released in uh, 70? so it's actually released at the very very end of 77 where star wars comes out in may of 77 right i think that columbia rushed him to get it out <clears throat> before christmas and columbia was having big financial problems so they were pushing him to get it out for the holiday season the big movie going season so they could make some bank which, which is, they did. Yeah, which is understandable. I mean, uh, they, they right. got about a 15-fold return on their investment for this. And they probably knew, you know, with Star Wars out, Spielberg at the helm, that they, were, they had, you know, they had a big fish on the line. Yeah, they but, did. And, and they we'll, spent we'll some we'll money get back making to, it. We'll get back to the, the pressure from Columbia when we talk about the ending, I guess. Sure. Um so this is, I have to say that this is my first time, I, I rewatched the entire film yesterday, and this is, I think, my first time watching the movie in its entirety in rock bottom, minimum 15 years. And I never saw this in the theater. Did you see this in the theater? I did see it in the theater, but uh, it was, you know, this was, was a long time ago. You know, I mean... Yeah. Uh, 40 years, practically, Jesus. Yeah. Um. Yeah, for some reason, you know, it's funny because this was right up my alley. And yet for some reason, I never saw this one uh, in the theater. And I actually didn't see it until we were uh, uh, much older. I didn't see this till I was about in high school. So maybe a good 10 years or so after it came out, I actually saw it on video. It just kind of didn't have a big, uh, didn't sort of, you know, get a lot of play in, in our house for some reason. Even though it had been on video before that for a long time. Right. I think I, I can't remember the last time I saw it, but like you, I watched it again recently and it had been decades, at least decades since I've seen it because we're relatively well into middle age for all you uh, <laughs> millennials listening. You just totally outed us. <laughs> Grandpa. Um, it's based on um, or it's heavily based off of uh, a science fiction film Spielberg made as a kid called Firelight. Um and uh, you can actually see some of the remaining uh, scenes that exist still of Firelight on YouTube. And I, I watch them, although it's very, very hard to make a lot of sense of them. Many of the scenes have no sound. And there is no and, complete copy of Firelight in existence. But I watched 
I watched everything I could find on YouTube, which primarily consists of a couple looking up into the night sky at lights moving by, which actually is sort of similar to to a lot of elements of the final film. <laughs> <laughs> right, just less French. Right, but you know he he was a but you know he he was a kid when he when he made that. I mean, oh he yeah, was a it's teenager. clearly a student film, but but yeah. many of the many of the same elements appear. Yeah, he he'd been working on. Um, basically he he really had had been wanting to make close encounters for many years he was <clears throat> intending to make it before jaws but jaws came up he couldn't really get close encounters rolling so he made jaws and then jaws basically was such a massive hit that it gave him enough credibility to basically get anything he wanted made right. so he was able to pour a, a, quite a lot of money into close encounters and pretty much have complete creative control because jaws was a huge hit right and you know it's also i think it's important to remember that the 70s were a time when ufos were hot i mean ufos were essentially a national craze in the 70s and i mean everybody was interested in ufos it was just you know it was the one of the sort of like pop topics of the day by the way you know what's interesting you know what made ufos go away the iphone Uh, the simpsons no the iphone Right. Like right. now we all have high res digital cameras on our person. Not a lot of UFO photos anymore. You know, <laughs> like, right. I like think no Spielberg more black actually, and white pie tins. Right. Spielberg actually said that in an interview that he oh, was big. He? He, he, it's interesting. He said that because I, I saw this clip and he was saying that he was, you know, this uh, really into UFOs uh, at the time. And he believed that there had been sightings uh, like uh, many people did that, that there was some kind of cover up there maybe had been something that had happened. And he said he, he has since uh, revised that because the amount of quality video that's around and nothing has ever turned right, up. Exactly. Right. Believe me, if a UFO landed, we would see it. You know, I mean, the, the right. internet is, is full of uh, videos of people having bizarre accidents on skateboards and bicycles and driving. I mean, believe me, if you can fill a random, you know, car accident on the highway, you can film a, a spaceship descending from the heavens with your iPhone. Right. Well, it may just be that that you know the basically the uh, guy hitting himself in the nuts with the broom <laughs> is far more entertaining <laughs> than the, the same looking alien. Uh, so you know, it, it, it. I think it still is in the uh, in the Weekly World News and right. the National Enquirer, but they're they've been relegated back to like page ten. They're right. not on the cover. Anymore. But I mean, I remember you meet Nimoy's In Search of about every other yeah, episode was... of In Search of was about UFOs, and I don't know if you remember there was a show on Network Prime Time called. Project UFO, I believe, that was sort of like a fictionalization of the actual Project Blue Book, which was an honest-to-God government investigation into UFOs to see if they were extraterrestrials. Right. How come nobody ever talks about spending government money on that? (laughs) I just, I don't know. I just, uh, this was a hot topic. I mean, he definitely struck while the iron was hot, shall we say. I used to watch In Search of... Yeah, I, I mean, I'd still watch and search up who was on. <laughs> you can probably find on YouTube with I'm everything sure else. Everything's on YouTube. By the way, Nimoy must have just hated himself when he was making that. He probably figured it was just another check, you know? He probably phoned it in. I mean, literally, he probably phoned it in or he went to whatever studio, wherever he was doing something else and, you know, got got paid. And he got his name, yep. you know, on the, on the opening credits. Yep. Um, I love the way that We'll get back to Close Encounters in a second, but I do love the way that in every <laughs> single episode of In Search of, no matter how outlandish, you know, Noah's Ark, Bigfoot, you know, no matter how, the Yeti, no matter how crazy mm-hmm. it was, Nimoy would, would narrate as if it was just this side of plausible, you know. <laughs> of course. I know, but, you know, when we were kids, I mean, I believed it, you know, what, it was Spock. I mean, Spock would never lie to you, would he? Jeez. Right. He he had gravitas. <laughs> he still has gravitas. That's what I'm saying. I know, I'm he's, not, he's not even alive. Still um, does. Do you want to talk about the writing? Yeah. Uh, the writing apparently was a bigger saga than the movie because um, it took them many, many drafts. They hired many multiple writers early on. And in the end, Spielberg wrote the, wrote the movie himself. And um, 
the producers, it was the Phillips, right? The the two Phillips. Uh, is that who the producer the was? Man it was and Phillips the woman, couple. I think. Yeah, Julia yeah, Phillips think and Michael cu- Phillips. Right, and they had made a. They were pretty pretty well known, successful producers. Had had made a multiple um, multiple other uh, high profile pictures, and um, they they'd been working on the project for a few years um, with Spielberg, and they couldn't get a good script going. Nobody liked what was what any of the revisions that were coming out, and in the end, basically, I think they pushed Spielberg to to write it because it was clearly his pet project. It was something he'd been kicking around since he was a teenager, at least the germ of it. And, uh, and so he wrote it and I saw his, um, in that same interview where he was talking about UFOs, he, he said that when he wrote the story, he essentially wrote it from the ending, uh, backward. So he wrote the, the meeting with the aliens and conceptualized all of that. And then he worked backwards to figure out a way for all the characters to advance through the story and end up together at, at that Devil's final Tower. point. Right. Right. In Wyoming. And to me, actually, you can sort of see that in the movie. But um, I, I, think, um, I think the movie accelerates a lot once they start heading towards Devil's Tower. Um, you know, well, it's, it, I it, mean, it, it it definitely takes its time. I think it's close to two and a half hours. Um, you know, there's not a lot of two and a half hour science fiction movies anymore. Uh, I think the first hour was two and a half hours. <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> uh, but, you know, one of the things that I was really struck by watching it this time, and, and it, it's, it's kind of in regards to the pacing, is I kind of felt like I had the inverse experience watching it this time to what I had had my, when I was much younger in the sense that when I was uh, watching it as a, a young adult or an adolescent, I was very, very interested in the Roy Neary saga, and I identified with Roy. And now I was much more interested in the Francois Truffaut character uh, and and the, sort of the effort of the government slash academics to try to you know in an organized way put together what was happening um, and the scene for example where they they come across flight nineteen or the 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 ship in the the desert um, right. and all the other things I found very very interesting you know even the scene where they talk about the you know the map coordinates i I distinctly remember finding those scenes dull in the past whereas i you know i i kind of felt like uh just like i said the inverse of the way i felt about it before so things i used to think were slow i didn't think were slow this time and vice versa yeah, I, I think you're wondering the whole time, where did this guy come from? How did he start investigating this? What does he really know? Um, logically, how does he get to the point where he's going to meet the aliens and where they build this tremendous landing zone in like four seconds out in Wyoming? And I I, I think you're right. I think that's very interesting. And they, they don't really ever sort of explain that because the movie is more... I mean, the viewpoint of the movie is is really from an uninformed viewpoint, right? So the movie, it, it it tries to, and it does succeed in cultivating a sense of wonder, right? Especially in the end. But it the viewpoint is from Richard Dreyfus Roy and from a similar puzzled outsider um, who's really uninvolved. The, the Lacombe character, do you mean? I mean, the, just the viewpoint of the story, like the, oh, yeah. the, 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 because clearly he, he knows a bunch of stuff that he doesn't really impart at any point during the movie. You don't really know his history or what's going on. Like you're, you're a fly on the wall and there are all these people operating and you don't really know how everything got to that point. Yeah. Although in all fairness, you don't necessarily have to, and it's nice right. that they, you know, they keep the exposition to a minimum. And like, for example, the the scene where uh, Bob Balaban's character, David Laughlin, meets uh, Francois Truffaut's Claude Lacombe for the first time, there's a great little bit 
where he says, uh, oh, by the way, I was at that conference where you uh, were recognized and congratulations on your award, you know, and mm-hmm. you don't know what any of that was, but it's enough to convey that Lacombe is a respected and acknowledged academic publicly. And it's sort of enough to give you as the audience member buy in that. Okay, he's legit. And it's a great little bit of writing, that exchange. Like, they convey a lot in a very, very little time. You know, and it sort of hints that Lacombe and Laughlin occupy a very different world than, you know, utility worker Roy Neary. Like, they said a ton by saying just a few words. It reminds me of there's that great scene uh, in Ronin where they're having the shootout at the the Coliseum and the two hitmen run into each other and one of them says, where do I know you? And the other guy goes, Vienna. And the first guy goes, of course. And that's it. Like, you don't (laughs) know whatever happened in Vienna, but like just a few words creates essentially a whole backstory and they do the exact same thing here. Yeah. I wonder what the movie would have been like if they wrote it from the viewpoint of of LeConte or the government people. Right. Although and, they have less at stake, right? Whereas Roy yeah. Neary or Melinda Dillon's character, the, the mother of the little girl, you know, they have skin in the game. So you've got to have them for the intensity. Whereas, you know, the uh, Lacombe and the other government people, they're very, very involved, but you don't feel like they're at any personal risk. Right. Here, right. let, let's go through the cast a little bit because we're sort of covering the characters a little bit. Let's go through the cast really quick and the casting. You want to talk about Dreyfus? Yeah, Dreyfus, who lobbied for the role from Jaws when he heard about it because Spielberg had been working on it in the background for years. So Dreyfus pushed for it, and apparently they were trying to find somebody else and couldn't. Right? I think they were trying to find anybody else, it sounds yeah. like. And he ends up getting it. Yeah, and I think that they looked at a lot of other actors who were bigger names, who wanted more money than Dreyfus was asking for, and then they all passed on it. So then they kind of came back to Dreyfus, and from what I read, he was initially asking for half a million, and then he took less. Hmm. So that having been said, it's it's you know it's the seventies. You know, even if even if he took a quarter million, it's still pretty good money. Sure, and he made a lot more after that, too. Well, and it this kind of, a big hit. you know, in Jaws, he's clearly the third banana on the Orca, right? The second half of the movie when they're on the boat, you know, it's really Roy Scheider and Robert Shaw who really captivate you. And the Dreyfus character, you know, he literally disappears for the last half hour of the movie. He goes under the water. You believe that he's dead. And then after the shark is killed, he resurfaces. So, like, he's Mm -hmm. such a third banana. He's gone for the last half hour of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, It's interesting how different he looks in this than he looks in Jaws. You know, in Jaws, he's supposed to be the so-called fuzzy-headed academic. And they give him a very, very different look. Whereas here, they give him, like, a sort of a blue-collar haircut, you know. And and he's sort of, he's portrayed much more here as an everyman. He, you know... Yeah. And then you have Francois Truffaut, who uh, is uh, from, uh, you know, a French filmmaker, more filmmaker than, right, French 400 Blows and uh, known for the French New Wave. And I'm sure uh, Spielberg was a huge fan, I'm sure. And he also saw him act and then figured that uh, he could play and then he recruited him. And I think this is his only uh, acting in in something that wasn't one of his own movies. Right. Um, Terry Gar. Terry Gar has a, a small but notable part as Roy's wife. Terry Gar will always be to me uh Roberta Lincoln uh from the <laughs> original uh Star Trek episode that was the the episode with Gary Seven that was supposed to be a pilot for another show. Right. Um, Terry Gar and Richard Dreyfus together later and let it ride about the racetrack which is a great uh, cult movie by the way yeah you always liked uh let it ride i've never seen it uh but oh. and she will always be like i said roberta lincoln to me from assignment earth um uh did you notice by the way a very young lance heinrichsen has a small yep. part he has very very few words in the movie yep. but uh he's there 
Uh, one day he'll be Bishop in Aliens. And I have right. to tell you, um, before we talk about he the kid. He looks the same. He does look the same. But, but I got to tell you, before we talk about the kid, Bob Balaban steals every scene that he is in in this movie. I, think. I agree. He doesn't have a lot. Even when he's speaking French. Yeah. And he didn't, and he wasn't apparently very good at speaking French, but the scenes in the desert, he's sort of the stand in for the audience as they're trying to figure out what's happening, what's happening. And, you know, they get to do the exposition to him. The scene where he talks about being a cartographer and recognizing the map coordinates, you know, mm-hmm. and he's done this in other movies too, where he's not the, you know, the, the top of the billing. And he becomes very, very memorable. And and the best example I can give of Bob Balaban doing that is um, Peter Hyams, uh, 1984, 2010, um, where he plays Dr. Chandra, you know, and he's up there with John Lithgow and Roy Scheider and Helen Mirren, and he steals absolutely every scene he's in. And he has the best scene in the entire movie where... At the end of the movie, when there's sort of the, the crisis is in full bloom, he has a conversation with Hal uh, that the whole movie kind of hinges on. And I remember, mm. you know, decades later, when I think of 2010, I think of Bob Balaban as Dr. Chandra talking to Hal. So it's nice to see him here pretty much stealing every scene he's in, you know, a decade earlier. I think it, he actually would be perfect uh, vehicle for a viewpoint for the movie if you wanted to write it that other way yeah and you certainly could like you could almost imagine his character wrote a book about it afterwards you know mm-hmm. you know and if you look at uh bob balaman's filmography i mean it's unbelievable like the guy has made a movie or two every year since the 60s and he is in mm-hmm. everything midnight cowboy catch 22 you know altered states this I mean, everything, I'm just, I'm just looking through. It's just an incredible filmography the guy has. And he's been a, a very, very large amount of television. Anyway, interesting. Do you want to talk about the kid, Carrie Guffey? The, the beloved uh, Carrie Guffey playing <laughs> Barry, the poorly behaved child who keeps trying to get himself injured or in trouble or abducted and finally succeeds. Right, owner of the monkey with the symbols. <laughs> yes. Um so the so the the most interesting thing to me, besides how incredibly beloved the kid is um, in general, as we were speaking about earlier, is uh, he was three. So so uh, Carrie, the the actor, child actor, was actually three years old. And the fact that Spielberg was able to get anything useful out of a three year old, unless they did, you know, they they did seventeen you know months straight of takes. And just by sheer volume, you'd get something decent eventually. It was like when my daughter, we went to Target to the film studio and she was screaming, crying, but they took like (laughs) 4,000 pictures. And one of them in the grimace, in her her grimace looked like a smile. You were like, perfect. That's the one, you know. Uh, But if they didn't do that, and and I heard that that uh, he, he would be like one or two takes in every scene. Apparently, um, Kubrick was very impressed with him. I read that in a couple of places that Kubrick very strongly considered him for Danny and The Shining. Hmm. Although, uh, it looks like he made just a few other movies and then that was kind of it. Like, his filmography kind of ends in 1985. Still alive? Uh, according to Wikipedia, he's 44. Yikes. Um, and I guess anybody else worth noting in this? I guess Melinda Dillon plays Barry's mother, although I wasn't really familiar with her from other movies. No, I don't remember seeing her. Although she has a good 70s feel in this. Like she has a good sort of like 70s look with her, the way like her clothes are cut and her hair cut. No like, like she kind of con- <laughs> she kind of conveys the time very, very well, you know? Yeah. Especially um, the women's lib part, because I don't think she, she's <laughs> never wearing a bra, ever. That's what she conveyed. Uh, um, I think, you know, I think the movie looks great. Uh, and I think one of the reasons the movie looks great is because they use models. You know, there's no CGI in this. It's all, yep. you know, it's models and optical effects. And, you know, models look great. 
decades later. Uh, and it's Doug Trumbull, too. It's right. It's Doug Trumbull of, of 2001. 2001 fame and other things uh, who really knew what he was doing. And, I mean, there is some very sophisticated model work in this. And, for example, there are those three ships that they sort of, like, run up and down the highway chasing after them. And the one of them that's sort of vaguely cone-shaped doesn't fly level. It sort of tumbles end over end. And I imagine that was not an easy effect to make. Um, I don't they did a great job, and the and the the lights looked terrific. Yeah, apparently the they, models were filmed in dense fog to give that lights that sort of like very, very, very uh, impressive glow. Yeah, and they they did a great job. The, the perspective, the um, the sense of of uh, distance of the of the spaceships traveling from far to near, from near to far. We are constantly running in and out, and it. it gives them a, a very real sense, a sense of space. And then because of that, there's a, tra- because of the rate of traversal, it gives them a really great sense of speed too. And, uh, and scale. Was, and scale. Right. Terrific. It was terrific. One of the, I think one of the really interesting scenes with the alien ships, you never actually see them. And that's the, the scene where the air traffic controllers are talking to the pilots of a couple of airliners. And there's no effects in that scene. It's just, air traffic controllers staring at their screen yet it looms so large in your mind what's actually happening that you know with no models and no effects they pull off one of the more memorable scenes of the movie mm-hmm. the you know what you know what's not a great model actually is the ship i think it's the colpaxo the ship they find <laughs> in the desert is clearly uh, a forced perspective shot where the model is placed in the near foreground and the actors are standing very, very, very far off in the distance to mm-hmm. make the ship look large. And I remember as a kid being impressed by that scene. And as I, as I watched it yesterday, I was like, oh, it's, it's just a little model. Like it, it just <laughs> it looks like a model. Like it doesn't have great detail. It's also filmed in very, very bright and harsh light, whereas the spaceship models, you know, the darkness and the, the bright lights can, that they have on them can, you know, hide a multitude of sins. You can't win them all. No, there's and you know there's a sense of playfulness from some of the aliens, right? The scene where the the spaceship rises up behind Roy's truck, um, the the toll booth gag. Um, yeah, why the aliens would go to the toll booth, I don't know, but um, yeah, you know it's Spielberg. Just for shits and giggles, right? It's and, Spielberg. And and uh, the actually the the pickup truck scene is a, is a great scene. There's, there's a few iconic scenes in the movie. Um, besides the, obviously the, the end, which we're going to get to, but, uh, you know, the, the pickup truck is, is one of them. That's one of the iconic, uh, close encounter scenes. It's, it's, um, it's Roy's first encounter. It's his close encounter initially with the alien and he's in his truck and the alien shows up behind him, uh, At at a railroad crossing. And you first aren't sure if it's just another car pulling up behind him because a minute ago a car with some people that curse him out pull up pulls up and sits there. So for a second you're not sure if it's another car pulling up, but then the thing just goes vertical, and then you realize uh, that's that's an alien. And uh, you know then his truck gets turned around. They actually turned his truck in a like a, a gimbal, three hundred sixty degrees. Yeah. yeah. For that scene, because the stuff is flying around, and um, you can sort of it gives you the sense that the, that gravity is completely changing. And you know, um, it's a, I, I had read before I watched the movie again how they did that, and when you know how they did it, it's obvious. But I would have never figured it out just watching it. Never, because it looks good, and uh, and the camera's the scene. camera's well fixed. You know, like the yep. camera, you know, mo- doesn't move at all. There's no sense of wobble at all. You just you're just sort of there, like the frame doesn't doesn't jigger at all. Yeah, and the other you know big scene is uh, the mashed potato scene. That's another classic uh, scene of the movie where um, Roy's obsessed after his contact. He, he's something. There's some kind of um, information transfer that happens between the aliens and him, and it gives him this persistent vision of of Devil's Peak. Uh, because he's supposed to show up there, and they they and they hint that well they don't hint they explain later that probably a lot of people everybody who had contact had a, a similar experience. But he starts uh, for him it's sculpting for whatever reason. So he starts with mashed potatoes when they serve dinner, and he uh, 
he it's the beginning of him ignoring his family um and he he sculpts mashed potatoes into a mountain and uh, i think that scene everybody kind of was it's really stuck well and it's very iconic i think yeah and also there's you know it's it's played for laughs at first and then it starts to be played more for you know as sort of almost like a horror like the scene where he's you know he's upending his guard and he's throwing dirt in through the window you mm-hmm. know in full view of the neighbors you know like the vision that the aliens implant in him is it starts to become less funny and more scary as it goes on it's supposed to drive him nuts to the point where his kids and his wife nobody can stand the guy and they dislike him and you kind of um, get a sense that the marriage wasn't great before the mashed potatoes. Yeah, but uh, you know, basically, he he ends up abandoning his family, which we'll talk about later. But they're supposed to. He's supposed to be obsessed to the point over enough of uh, passage of time that he, it's really frightening to them. And um, you know they. It still doesn't fully sort of explain what happens in the end, um, but you do get the sense that he's getting worse. You know, he gets worse and worse. Right. the 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 intensity of the the vision is is getting greater and greater with time, to the point where it's crowding out other thoughts in his head, and he sort of he sort of has a singularity of focus that's uncomfortable for both him and those around him. You know, it becomes a true compulsion. He doesn't work. He doesn't do anything else in the end. And there's, you know, there's a couple of aspects of this film that remind me of 2001. And, and this is, for example, one of them, the idea that the extraterrestrials would non-verbally implant ideas on the minds of the humans, right? which is very, very similar to what the monolith does to the Moonwatcher character in the, in the uh, Dawn of Man sequence in 2001. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. clearly Spielberg is has seen 2001 and and there's a couple of very strong echoes of 2001 in this although these are yeah. clearly more sort of benign and cuddly aliens uh, as opposed the tone to the, is as opposed to the aliens of 2001 much. which you never actually visualize and are portrayed as anything but warm and fuzzy <laughs> um <clears throat> but again I I remember and feeling in the past and this time that you know, Roy's visions are played for laugh, but they're mostly scary, you know, because yeah. he's kind of he's literally coming apart in front of his family and his kids and, and they're not having a good time about it. Um, right. So let's talk about you want to talk about the uh, the final act of the film? Um, yeah, sure. So, you know, everything kind of comes to a head. The, you know, people are drawn to Devil's Tower. The government creates. Uh, a, a false cover story uh, of uh, poisoned air um, to get everybody out of there so that they can essentially have the aliens all to themselves. Um, and uh, Roy Neary, along with um, the mother of the boy, and then a, a random character who's just sort of thrown in at the last minute, uh, who they meet on a helicopter as they're about to be evacuated, uh, run run off the helicopter and uh, seemingly run past a lot of guards and people who should stop them and no one really does anything. And they just, especially because the other dude is this weird Californian. He keeps talking about LA. Yeah. And he's wearing dress shoes. <laughs> like as he's yeah. climbing, he's doing this, doing this very, very arduous climb and, and what looks like, you know, loafers. Um, <laughs> and they just, they get to the top of devil's tower where the humans uh, have a brief encounter with, uh, three alien ships, the same three or similar ships that you've been seeing the whole movie, where they uh, exchange the five tone greetings and have a sort of limited interaction, and then they fly off, and you think that's it. Like the aliens have acknowledged our presence, and the movie is over, and the humans are all sort of the tension is broken, and they're sort of congratulating each other on the successful encounter, and then uh, lo and behold, out of uh, what is clearly it looks like oil and water uh, being used to make uh, very very large clouds the mothership comes and in uh an incredible effect sequence inverts itself and almost lands sort of stops about three feet off the ground 
open up its door. Out come all the abducted humans, including uh, Barry, uh, young Barry, who's reunited with his mother, uh, Jillian. Um, and then uh, uh, the humans have a more face-to-face encounter with a variety of extraterrestrials, most of whom look very, very anthropomorphic. Uh, and then in the end, Roy, yeah. uh, along with a select group of other people, uh, boards the ship and abandons his wife and children. <laughs> I think only Roy goes. I don't know. I, I, I I'm pretty to, sure he's not the I'm only not sure one who that. goes. Why would they just send him? I'm pretty sure there's well, other know, people. You know, they they have a bunch of people no, no, in red he's pajamas. Not, no, he's not the only one. because They give him that little jumpsuit. Like, somehow they had these little uniforms ready. Um, well, there's all these, the, the red pajamas. There's a whole bunch of guys in red silk yeah, pajamas standing but he goes. there, right? He's not the only one who goes. There's There's other people who go with him. Except that they show the alien getting up, goes up and picks him. He's at the back of the line, and the alien basically says, "You know, <laughs> screw all you chumps." <laughs> yeah, it goes straight over to him, yeah. and they're like, "We need some electric." You know, we, we got some down paralyzed. Get this guy up there, <laughs> and they go straight to the back and pick him, and then he walks on the ship. And then in in the the earlier um, versions of the film that Columbia um, uh, Columbia pushed for. They show the interior of the ship and that on and that scene, which I, I saw a terrible copy of on, on YouTube, which it looked like, you know, looking through Vaseline. But you could still it was just him. I mean, and they, you know, they kept cutting back to him. Um, it's you know, there's about four million shots in the movie where they show. No, they, no, the he's camera. not the only one. There's like 10 guys. I'm there's watching 10, it but now. they don't but they don't show any of them going on the ship. Yeah, but I don't know. It's kind of implied that they go. I thought, but then, you know, I don't, I'm not sure anymore. I, I thought they would have gone, but then I'm telling you in the, all those other shots, it's only him hmm. after that. I, and I'm not sure. It's I mean, not the, clear. the little, the little, uh, the little kitties, little kitty versions all sort of take him by the hand and he goes up. But I don't know. I always got the impression that he wasn't the only one to go. I thought so, but there's nothing. They don't show anything, anybody else going. Hmm. And in those, I'm telling you that in the extended scenes uh, that he later cut out, it's just him and all the reaction shots, um, you know, are him. All those, those mid shots where they show the person, you know, looking with wonder at something before you see it. And then they show the thing, um, which he does, you know, Look, Spielberg's a great movie maker, so I almost feel like who the hell am I to criticize in a way sometimes? But on the other hand, it was it irritated me. I mean, the guy like there's so many shots like that, and they do it again when he's he's inside the spaceship, and they show him looking at wonder, looking up, and looking with wonder up, looking down with wonder, and then they show the effect shot of the interior of the ship, hmm. and um, it's only him. Huh. I'm watching it. I'm just, I pulled up that little clip at the end of while we're talking and you do only see him go up and the other guys are all standing there right at the lip of the spaceship. You know, I'm sure Alan Dean Foster wrote the novelization to this because he wrote the novelization to every big sci-fi movie <laughs> from the last 40 years. Uh, right. I'm sure that the novelization clarifies it. Apparently when they were filming all the little short anthropomorphic aliens, um, they, uh, they look terrible. You know, they're, they're designed by Carlo Rimbaldi, who did a lot of other stuff, including the sandworms in uh, David Lynch's Dune. And apparently the, the, the answer to make the aliens look real was to really, really, really overexpose all the shots of them and to have them aggressively backlit. Because when they weren't aggressively backlit and overexposed, it became very, very apparent that they were either puppets or people in suits. They were wearing sweat socks. Right, right. Well, they were, and if you look, there's a bunch of production images that you can find online, and the, and the the small aliens are in fact played by children in you know latex outfits. Right. Um, but uh, I don't know. Now I'm I'm curious. Except if, if, for the if, hand gesture alien, that that was a puppet. Right, yeah, it's definitely a puppet, although a good looking puppet, I must say. Yeah. A good looking puppet. You know, it's interesting how like this sort of view of aliens sort of permeated you know, alien movies forever. You know, aliens often look like these guys. And for example, uh, 
I read when we were kids, I read that book by Travis Walton who claimed he was abducted and the aliens in his book look exactly like the aliens and close encounters. Like it just kind of got into the popular culture that somehow extraterrestrials would look like skinny uh, white people with big eyes and little tiny mouths. Well, I think it's kind of like Jesus, you know, you don't see too many black Jesuses. They're always the same. <laughs> Although there's the an episode of Good the... Times where Jimmy Walker paints a, a painting of black Jesus. <laughs> well, that's because he's Jimmy Walker. Dynamite. <laughs> Dynamite. Um, so, uh, and then after, but, so they never actually show anybody else getting up. And then after Roy goes aboard, um, the, the mothership takes off and flies directly into the end credits. It actually almost right. hits the words uh, a Steven Spielberg film, <laughs> the spaceship. <laughs> you can imagine the aliens like, watch out for the credits. <laughs> Don't hit the producers. Uh, ironically, they turned Roy into jelly because they forgot that the uh, humans can't endure 400 Gs. <laughs> right, right. Here, read this book to serve man. <laughs> <laughs> how to serve humans. How it's to a serve, good book. How to cook. No, how to cook. It's how to cook humans and then it's how to cook four humans and then it's how to cook 40 humans <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yet another great simpsons joke uh again borrowing from um from kubrick uh the aliens never speak which i think is the only way to do it because whenever the aliens say anything it just sounds like a human right it's very hard to have mm-hmm. the aliens say anything and, and i think intelligently here uh, the aliens really don't say anything. Um, like uh, in uh, in Bob Zemeckis's Contact, you know, when Jody Foster finally meets the aliens, you know, they say very pat things. Oh, you're an interesting species, you know, which is basically what the Metrons told Captain Kirk after he <laughs> defeated the Gorn in Arena. Like we kind of seen that sort of gimmick before. Like, oh, maybe in a couple of millennia, you know, we'll we'll talk yep. again. But it's better if the aliens don't say anything, and they did that here. Mm-hmm. You know, and not only, only does if... not only does the movie sort of borrow from two thousand one in a couple of ways, and there's also it borrows a lot from two thousand one with a sort of conspicuous sense of awe. Whereas in, right. in two thousand one, exactly. you know, Dave's encounter with the aliens at the end of the movie is mostly played, you know, to be terrifying, and you know, the, he's clearly. There are shots of him in the Stargates or still images where he's, you know, trying to turn away in his helmet and he can't. Whereas here mm-hmm. it's a sense of wonder and the aliens are, again, presented as friendly and benevolent, although not necessarily helpful. Like, you know, they don't really do anything for us. And then to, to go in the other direction, in many ways, I was thinking when I was watching it that this movie is essentially... Uh, the prequel to E.T., which is in many ways the exact same story where you have the parallel thread, right, of the everyday people focusing on a young boy and their interaction with the aliens. And the parallel story is the government's efforts to find and meet the extraterrestrials, whereas in Close Encounters, the government kind of comes out on top uh, and, you know, does let Roy have his experience whereas in in et the government is portrayed not so much as the villain because the leader of the government uh leader of the government effort to find the aliens in et is is portrayed as a pretty decent guy who explicitly says you know listen i've been dreaming of this my whole life but again you still have that sort of you know town versus gown you know us versus them the common man versus the government angle and et and actually the little the little puppet at the end that does the five tone hand gesture bears no small resemblance to et yeah I if agree. you look I at the shape e. of his eyes and his head like it's hard to ignore the fact that he looks a lot like et et's the more palatable and fun kind of version of 2001 i'm sorry of uh of close of encounters, close encounters it is. which is Right, close encounters. It's it's almost like if you if you shake all vestiges of two thousand one out of close encounters, <clears throat> and you add some better puppets, <laughs> and you add some some uh, you put and the viewpoint with kids, right? right? You add some more more kids uh, and a little some jokes. I mean, you get ET. Yeah, and and yeah. it's interesting that you know as big as 
as big as this was, you know, E.T. just dwarfed this. I mean, he returned to the exact same materials, the exact same themes, and for half the money, he made a movie that made almost triple at the box office. It's interesting that, like, he was able to sort of go back to the well and mine it out uh, yet again. Well, it's amazing he did any other movies except Alien movies because, you know, if it ain't broke, you know, don't fix it. But be the guy like he just you imagine if he would have done a third one, what, how great would that have been? <laughs> well, he kept in this upward path. Well, you know, it's interesting, too. Like this is early. Uh, this is early Spielberg, you know, where he's, you know, he's doing a mixture of mostly sort of, you know, light motif entertainment movies. Um you know, Raiders, E.T., Poltergeist, mm-hmm. you know. Poltergeist, um, he produced or wrote or something. I actually didn't, I don't think he directed it. But right, but yes, it's still but very, very much within his, you know, uh, right. his style. And then, you know, it's not really until Empire of the Sun, right, that you start to see sort of the adult Spielberg. The em- Schindler's emerge. List, Spielberg. Right, exactly. The Schindler's List. Right. Although he never, you know, he still, you know, he never fully gets away from his big Hollywood ventures, you know, with Jurassic Park or, you know, things like that. But again, it's, you know, it's hard to believe that the same guy that made this also made Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. You know, it's it's interesting or, or even Catch Me If You Can, which is thematically not a Spielberg, you know, what you would expect Spielberg to make at all. True. You know, but again, he comes back to this theme. Um you know, you could think, you could argue he comes back to some of these same things in a couple of other movies. Um, uh, War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise. There's some sort of like wink-winky stuff in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull where he sort of does come back to some similar themes or even, for example, the mecha sequence in AI. The mechas look very similar to the aliens in Close Encounters. Mm. I um I really I think though that I mean yes this movie's entertainment in the sense of the early Spielberg but on the other hand I think it feels different than a lot I mean it certainly feels different than Jaws it feels different than ET even though the material is the topic is similar and the the themes are somewhat similar the tone is much different and I I think that Close Encounters it's different. I think it's different from his light movies. Um, this movie. Yeah, Close Encounters. I think at for times, sure. uh, I mean, there's a, there's, you know, there's a lot of goofiness, too, in it. You know, like yeah. there, there is, you know, like, like like the lights going up or the toll booth. You know, like there, there are some sort of like lighter moments. Admittedly, there's a lot of serious stuff. Yeah. I and again, you know, it's, 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 it's much more, you know, is Jaws rated? Is Jaws rated R? I don't know if it was R or PJ. Yeah, I don't remember. But I mean, Jaws is, Jaws is not a, a kiddie movie. Like this is kind of like a. True. This is his first big movie that's geared towards a younger audience. Yeah. Well, Jaws is kind of a horror movie. Yeah, it's definitely you know? a horror movie. I mean, it's right. definitely a horror movie, and Jaws is kind of based off an Ibsen play. I mean. You know, it's mm. it's a, it's a more serious uh, take on adults, you know, grappling with a difficult problem um, than this. But you know, like I mean, when you think about this movie, I mean, there's been so many movies about you know humans having their first contact with extraterrestrials, some of which are done more seriously than others. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a pretty serious sci-fi movie about what would happen if humans you know, met aliens in the year 1977. Right. It's not exactly Nanu Nanu, Robin right, Williams. Exactly. Or, you know, it's not, uh, it's not Charlie Sheen's The Arrival. Although not to be confused with the, uh, the movie in theaters right now, the Amy Adams vehicle Arrival, which is, uh, <laughs> which bears many similarities to 2001. Although in that, the aliens actually speak, although they speak only with symbols, which is sort of an interesting way to get around it. Um, mm. But I mean, when you think about like what big, extra, you know, first contact movies were there 
before this, right? Uh, there's right. There's this. There's obviously um, 2001, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of sort of like pulpy sci-fi movies from the 50s. I guess there's right. the thing. And this was actually originally the Close Encounters was actually originally uh, titled "Who Goes There." Sorry, sorry. Watch the sky, which is the famous last line from the the original version of the thing. But again, usually it was played for horror, right? Or the aliens right. were malevolent, you know, invasion of the body snatchers. Whereas mm-hmm. here, like you're curious, but you're never really afraid, you know. Like you know, th- th- these Correct. aliens aren't, you know, you know, abducting people and treating them badly. Like the humans emerge from the the mothership, you know, confused but not injured right <clears throat> you know they're not mutilating cattle these aliens <laughs> right? right it's the people trying to find the aliens that are mutilating the cattle right as they as they race their cars around and drive you know drive recklessly and um, nerve gas them right right um so i don't know like i'm trying to think of other big sci-fi movies that deal with first contact before this because i can think of an awful lot of sci-fi movies that deal with first contact after this besides the 50s and and 2001 which is in its own category as usual i don't um i don't think there are well there must be some but they're probably lesser films that we're just not able to think of off the top of our head um Mm -hmm. but you know it's it's just uh it's notable for me that it's a serious attempt to address the subject um and you know and it's it's it's, not a horror movie spawned you know dozens dozens and dozens of of copies and, and other movies that uh tried to do the same thing over the years you know um well that was part of the big sci-fi revival well and you know uh it, it showed that there was just so much money to be made you know that sure. these big 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 sci-fi movies could do it oh i guess you know i just thought of one from the 50s, The Day the Earth Stood Still, right? Yeah. Directed yeah. by Bob Wise, who would later go on two years after this to direct Star Trek The Motion Picture. But in The Day the Earth Stood Still, the aliens are portrayed as a mix of dangerous and benevolent. Whereas when the aliens come, uh, you know, Klaatu brings a message of peace. Uh, although, uh, you know, at one point he does actually instruct Gort to literally destroy the world. Uh, and and they they make it clear that they have uh, the power to do that. So again, and and again, the day the Earth stood still, even though it's from the fifties and it has a few light moments, uh, it's, it's a pretty spooky. serious movie. But going back, you know, before this, there's just there's not a ton of big serious sci-fi movies um, that address this issue. I guess before this period. I mean, that fits in with the the serious 50s sort of scary alien movies. Right, like, you know, like War of the Worlds, for example. Yep. And and in War of the Worlds, you know, the the alien's motive is very, very base, you know, to to conquer Mm -hmm. the planet. Um, Right. Interesting. Unlike Um, in, you know, in The Matrix where they need to generate power. Right, which makes no sense, but anyway. Um, yep. Everything in the Matrix, I always kind of felt like like William Gibson got robbed. You know, <laughs> when we were when we were kids, I I saw I'm going to make a long a little bit of a long story to tell an interesting point about uh, the Matrix. When we were kids, when my brother and I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, we came running home. We were so excited. We told our our father about it. We went to see it the next day, and. Greg and I, my brother, just kind of flew out of the thing on wings. We were so excited. And my father was very flat. And I was like, I was like, what do you mean? You didn't like it? And he was like, well, I'd seen all that stuff before. You know, and I was too young to realize that Raiders of the Lost Ark had just, you know, was an intentional sort of like ripoff slash homage to the action serials of the 30s and 40s, you know, that my dad had seen as yep. a kid. And then, you know, fast forward 20 years. Everyone is telling me about the Matrix. I know I like genre films, and and I went and saw the Matrix with some friends, and we we walked out, and they were like, "Wasn't that amazing?" And, and I was like, "Well, every single thing in there was in the the William Gibson Sprawl trilogy, you know." And I they were all kind of like, "What's the matter with you?" And then I realized, "Oh, this is how my father felt at Raiders of the Lost Ark," <laughs> you know, like I'd seen it all before. 
Um, Although nobody had stuck a you know a ring of uh, a bunch of like 135 millimeter film cameras in a circle. Yeah, well, certainly that, that that I'll give the Wachowskis. Um, but but you know, I mean, the the extent to which the Matrix borrowed parentheses stole uh, from <laughs> you know from William Gibson and others, you know, always amazes me. And again, we're we're getting a little off topic, but it's worth one other sentence on there's i believe a 1974 episode of uh doctor who with tom baker called the deadly assassin that takes place in a virtual reality world where if you die in the world you die in the real life and the name Mm -hmm. of the virtual reality world is the matrix (laughs) so you know like i mean i was very aware of that when i was watching the matrix in, in the 90s that like oh these are just recycled ideas for people who basically haven't seen them and again, Man. I don't know if you could say that about this because there are some genuinely new ideas in this movie um, and the way that the alien first contact is presented. It is, I mean, the, the last half hour, you really cannot turn away. I mean, it is a, it's a great, it's beautiful great looking. sequence. And, you know, there's sort of a sense of, you know, they cut back and forth between, you know, the, the you know, Roy, you know, standing with his mouth open and the the government people who are hard at work, whether they're, you know, working a computer or that guy at the keyboard, you know, you get a sense that these are people who are taking this very, very seriously and they don't even have time to be awed because they're working the moment, you know? Yep. And then, you know, it's, it's... funny because watching it now, like those scenes really grabbed me, whereas I didn't even remember those scenes of all the guys, you know, in control booths and, you know, wearing headsets. Like, they give the movie a sort of a, a feeling of complexity at the end that the humans are not just, you know, standing there slack-jawed, golly, looking at the alien <laughs> spaceship. Right. It's not just, they're not making it up as they go along. Well, they sort of are, but... And right. The, and the music, we didn't, just to touch on that, uh, we're probably going to wrap up, but just the, the music uh, is John Williams, John Williams. And, and the, the, really the, the best thing about the score is the, the famous, uh, musical theme, the five, five note tones. musical theme. And, uh, at, which is, you know, music as math and as communication with the aliens. And, uh, it, it's, it's really well done. Yeah. I read somewhere. I don't remember where it was. I read somewhere that, um, usually they score the movie after the movie has been made and they Williams turned in his score early. So a lot of the scenes were purposely edited to match, uh, the music. So they did it backwards, which is why some of the scenes match the, the score so closely. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's interesting, you know, I mean, when you think about the legacy of the movie, like, you know, you don't, hear a lot of people talk about close encounters anymore whereas you know i mean people still talk about jaws more and they certainly talk about star wars more thinking of you know films from the 70s but like i mean i mean maybe it's maybe it's right well the 80s the 80s um yeah but still it's sort of left more of an imprint i think right but i mean i don't you don't really you don't really hear hear a lot of people talk about it or it doesn't sort of come up in in, in books or articles about genre films in the seventies, even though it was a huge, huge deal at the time, you know, sometimes I wonder if, if it's more respected than loved this movie, do you know? I, I think know. so. Although, you know, if you, if you noodle around on YouTube, there's some interesting uh, fan videos that do show that some people, I guess, feel very, very strongly about the film. And like, for example, all the locations, um, you know, were real locations, and and there's some interesting uh, videos of people going, for example, to the house that they filmed at for Roy's house, uh, or the or or the kid and the woman's house, and you can you know people have gone in there and filmed what they look like now, and are sort of interested to see like this is where, you know, this is the window that he threw the dirt through when he was making the tower in his house, or you know, this is you can stand in the doorway of the house where the little boy is standing in the doorway and sees the the bright orange light in this sort of iconic shot. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe this wasn't that big a movie to you and me per se, but maybe it was a bigger movie to others. And again, I freely admit that I didn't see it in the theater, and perhaps if I had, it would occupy a bigger spot in my consciousness. Hmm. Did you? I, I forget. Did you say you saw it in the yeah, theater? I did. I remember seeing it with my parents. Did it make a big impression on you? Yes, but not as much as Star Wars. 
Yeah, well, that I mean, Star Wars is tough to top in '77, <laughs> especially when you're when you're an eight year old kid too. You know, I mean, you can't. Yeah. Star Wars is is going to overwhelm you by comparison. Yeah. Right, right. And Star Wars is meant to overwhelm you. I mean, quite literally, even from that opening shot, right? The the, the Star Destroyer shot, it's meant to overwhelm you. Well, um, unfortunately, Lucas can only make films for eight-year-olds. Because I, <laughs> I stopped being eight, and he was still making films for eight-year-olds. Yeah, I can't decide if I'm going to see Rogue One. Because even though that's technically Disney, I still feel like I've given George Lucas enough of my money. <laughs> that happened with that I'll probably see Rogue One. I swore on a Bible I, I wasn't going to see uh, The Force Awakens, and I and I ultimately did. Although I should have listened to my better instincts. Um, <laughs> I don't remember it. And there you have it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you just said everything that you need to know about The Force Awakens. I know I saw it, but I don't. I don't remember it. I remember listening to some podcast talking about it more than I remember the movie. Yeah, I, I just remember. I just remember thinking like how Harrison Ford looks. So so tired. <laughs> you know, like, he's so tired he can't spend all his money. Yeah, well, that's certainly true. He's like, he's like, Callista, should I do it? You know, <laughs> they're offering me thirty mil. <laughs> How much is that house in uh, South of right, France, in Wyoming, <laughs> wherever I want? Right? He? I right. think he's got a house somewhere in, uh, in everywhere. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think he, like, he owns planes and stuff. <laughs> anyway, um, any any last thoughts? I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I, maybe we're not doing. Uh, maybe we're not being kind to the legacy of this film because I don't know. My suspicion is it affected other people more, perhaps, than it affected me. But again, I saw it later. I think it's it's not. It doesn't loom as large as some of the other big science fiction films from you know from two thousand one up to the mid eighties. Um, uh, I think it. I think it, it does. It end with an explosion, <laughs> right? Which True. you know, like the Death Star. Well, and it doesn't There's have no Death like Star. it has a sort of ponderous climax. Like you're sort of left to like feel the awe of the encounter. Whereas it's not like a yeah, you know, like your fist is in the air, like yeah, you know, your popcorn's right. flying around. And um, it doesn't end with an existential speech by Rutger Hauer either. <laughs> All right, we'll get to that one. <laughs> or Daryl Hannah. Um, oh, and by the way, uh, I should just say uh, all 175 episodes of In Search of are available on YouTube. One hundred and seventy-five. Speaking of which, join that's, us by for the our way, next that's podcast. seven seasons. Nimoy collected wow. checks for seven seasons. How many episodes could they do about Bigfoot? <laughs> Nimoy's estate is getting a point oh oh one cent residual from you clicking on YouTube right there. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm looking through. Like, there's only looks like there's quite there's a couple of episodes on uh, YouTube. Sorry, on UFOs. There's they like ESP, <laughs> the San Andreas Fault. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Bigfoot, Sasquatch. I guess Bigfoot and Sasquatch are technically the same thing. Hey, can you click on the Jeffersons too, just to <laughs> send some love to Jimmy Walker? He no, no, needs, that's, that's he good needs time. the point. Oh, that's one. good time. Oh, good time. Sorry, <laughs> you're mixing your, oh, you, uh, you're mixing your seventies uh, Norman Lear uh, sitcoms. <laughs> damn, <It's> scary. <laughs> well, do the Jeffersons too. They, you know, they need somebody. <laughs> right, good times. <laughs> at least, at least, to listen to the opening credits song, "The Mummy's Curse," right. Atlantis. Right, uh, a hidden mm. Nazi gold. These are some good titles. It's <laughs> good stuff. Stonehenge, <laughs> the Flying Seriously, Dutchman. Did, what did they do for 175? I mean, what they must have repeated. They must have done like you know. The oh pyramids yeah, no, there's, two, the there's definitely. Uh, there's definitely. Uh, uh, I mean, their audience aged into puberty by the time that you know. <laughs> so they probably just started right, over again. <laughs> It's just, it's amazing. 175. Good Lord. They didn't have any episodes on like chicks. So, <laughs> no. <laughs> right. With, they, without a doubt, keep... there were absolutely no episodes on anything. <laughs> By the way, every single episode of In Search of would not appeal to the average female. It's, it's all geared for uh, impressionable adolescent or pre adolescent males, right? Who want to yeah. believe in Sasquatch. I think it's mostly pre-adolescent. I think when they hit adolescence, because they didn't do any like, they, if they'd done some episodes on Cleopatra, scantily clad or something, yeah. then they would have kept their audience, right, you know. The, but, the more adult audience. 
Uh, there's an episode on earthquakes. So I, in search of earthquakes, I'm not quite sure how they managed to fill 21 minutes and 50 seconds on that. But anyway, I'll have to check it out. Uh, but back to close encounters. Uh, and by the way, uh, thanks to George Helms, who appears to have single-handedly uploaded every episode of In Search of. Um, uh, any <laughs> final work, thoughts? George. Any final thoughts? No, I think yeah. we covered it. I think yes. Yeah. I don't know. See Honestly, I kind of respect it more now than I did. Like when you had suggested we do uh, close encounters for our next podcast, I, I will not lie to you. I wasn't that excited, but about halfway through the movie, I realized that I was really engrossed, and I thought, "Oh, good pick, good pick." Yeah, it took me uh, till the close to the final act till I really woke up. Personally, <laughs> woke up. <laughs> right, though the, the strange thing is, you made uh, over the course of the movie, you made a uh, a, a life size or a scale replica of Devil's Tower in your in your living room. <laughs> I did. What did you make it? Out of, what did you make it out of? You know, better yet, don't tell us. <laughs> Use toilet paper. <laughs> As I said, don't tell us. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, we should probably wrap there. Excellent. Um, See you next time. And then, uh, yeah, we'll have, to, uh, we'll have to be back soon for next week. Next week, 175 episodes of In Search of. <laughs> In one hour. <laughs> All right. Good night, uh, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.